joy. We talk about it, we sing about it, we think we know about it, but sometimes it comes in some difficult times. And that's a major difference between happiness and joy. Happiness comes from the same root that gives us happenstance. If things are going right, we're happy. But what if they're not? Um, Have you ever wondered what it would be like to walk free again after years behind bars? Well, Lee Horton and his brother Dennis know the feeling. They were convicted of robbery and murder and sentenced to life in prison without parole. Interestingly, one of the things that challenged it all, the man who actually confessed to the shooting received a much lighter sentence than they did. There were discrepancies uh, that happened, but after twenty-four over 24 years in prison, they were granted clemency and released. All along the way, they maintained their innocence. And people from all over the country came to champion because, as I said, the man who actually said, I did the crime, uh, actually got out after 20 years in prison. Uh, the, the interesting thing about it is they maintained they were not bright, They did something that got them in trouble. They saw a friend and offered him a ride after he had shot and killed somebody without knowing what had happened. Horton was interviewed. And I want you to hear, I know that as I look at who I am, if I had suffered over 24 years of injustice, I'm afraid it might have made me a better person. But when he was asked, what was the biggest change? What happened when you got out? Listen to what he had to say. I'm going to tell you honestly, the first thing I was, that I was aware of when I walked out of the doors and sat in the car, I realized that I wasn't handcuffed. So for all the time I've been in prison, every time I was transported anywhere, I always had handcuffs on. And that moment right there was the most emotional moment that I had had. Even when they told me that the governor had signed the papers, it didn't set in until I was in that car and I didn't have those handcuffs. And I don't think people understand the punishment that that is in being in prison. When you take away everything, everything becomes beautiful for you. This is my favorite part of his little testimony. When we got out, we went to the DMV to have our licenses restored. My brother and I stood in line for two and a half hours, and we heard all of the the, the bad things about the DMV. He said, we were having the most beautiful time. And all the people were looking at us because we were smiling and we were laughing and they couldn't understand why we were so happy. It was just that. Just being able to stand in that line, he said, was a beautiful thing. I was in awe of everything around me. It's like my mind was just heightened to every small nuance. Just to be able to, to look out a window, just to walk down a street and just inhale the fresh air, just to see people interacting. It woke something up in me. Something that I don't know if it died or if it went to sleep. I've been having epiphanies every single day since I've been released. One of my morning rituals every morning is I send a message of good morning, good morning, good morning, have a nice day to every one of my 42 contacts. And they're like, how long can he keep this up? But they don't understand that I was deprived. And now it's like I've been released and I've been reborn into a better day, into a new day. Like the person I was no longer exists. I step through the looking glass onto the other side and 
everything is beautiful. It is hard to imagine being incarcerated in prison for over a quarter of a century for a crime you didn't commit. It's perhaps even harder to imagine how someone who went through that could actually come through with an expectant joy, unexpected joy, in a DMV line. But I want you to consider this. Every one of us in this room has either been in prison or are still in prison. Every one of us. In the prison of sin. And the captivity of Satan. Paul wrote to Timothy about his prayer, uh, Timothy's task and calling. He told him, they, the lost people, were praying that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been captured by him to do his will. When we found release in Christ, and that's the only way you can break these chains, chains of our own making, chains of surrender of our life to a world system. When we found that in Christ, if you can remember back, did you not have joy? Did you not have a sense of freedom? There's this awareness. You, you may not have known the Bible well. You may not have known that Paul told the Corinthians that every man in Christ is a new creature, but there was something fresh about life and meaningful about life. But we have a problem. Because we live in a world that is still in chains. We live in a world where injustice, pain, confusion, sadness, unrighteousness, at times it's so overwhelming we have perhaps lost a bit of our joy. We are heading into the season that the songs on the radio tell us it is the hap happiest time of the year. And yet most of us know that there are people this Christmas season who are hurting, who are in pain, who are not having a happy time. And there may be such a person in our midst even now today. And even for the happiest, after it's all over, how's that wonderful post-holiday slump that we drop into? It's not always joyful. But on this Sunday Advent of Hope, we're going to look at a rather amazing passage of Scripture. And that will call us back to a joy. The truths we see today will fill us with the joy of the Lord that will exceed the greatest happiness you could get from wrapping, unwrapping the absolutely greatest, most expensive gift someone could give you. And I tell you this because it's important to know the prophet we're going to be reading from today, it's a short book. And if you read through Zephaniah, you will discover in this short book some of the harshest words of judgment in all of the Old Testament. And he's announcing judgment against Jerusalem, Israel, and even the whole world. And they're hard and they're tough. And then all of a sudden, he breaks into this amazing passage of Scripture. An amazing promise of hope. Zephaniah 3, 14 through 20. I'm going to ask you to stand and open your ears and your hearts to this incredible message. Remember, this was a prophet of doom and gloom. And he said, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again Fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. A, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. 
I will gather those to you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcasts and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restored your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. God bless the reading of this word. You may be seated. To a prophet of doom and gloom, God spoke an amazing word. God gave Judah, in this passage of Scripture, a reason to rejoice when he promised, one day I will restore your fortune right before your very eyes. I don't know about you, but we need joy today. In the world in which you and I live, we need joy. And we need the joy that only the Lord can bring. So how will God's joy become a reality in a world that knows so much pain? How does it become more than a little thing we sing about or send a card about? Well, today we're going to look at steps that God takes on behalf of his people that ultimately will lead them to rejoicing. And it's a beautiful passage. And, and folks, to be very honest, I could probably divide this sermon up into four weeks. But we're going to cover it in one day. Not even the whole day. So what are the steps God takes in this promise for rejoicing? on this beautiful Sunday advent of joy. Our very first step, God will quiet our hearts. God will quiet our hearts. Now this is important because the people have been hearing about judgment. This is actually several hundred years before the Babylonian captivity. But at this moment in time, Assyria is knocking on the door and scaring people. So this God is saying, I can take care of your fears for you. And Zephaniah showed his people this aspect of God's promise through several truths. God is going to quiet your heart. And these are the things that he said about the Lord God. This is amazing. Right off the bat, he told them that the Lord is in the midst of you, his people. I am with you. That's one of the strongest promises the Lord gives throughout his word to people who are in times of struggle. I mentioned him last week, but can you imagine being being Joshua? How would you like to follow Moses? I had a friend who who served in a church. The, The pastor before him served there 25 years, and he died. He didn't even retire. He died. My friend Paul, for four years he was there. All he ever heard was Brother Martin didn't do it that way. Well, Moses did. But God said, don't be afraid, I'm with you. He is with them. The Lord promised that they would be free from their enemies. And Israel had a long history of foes and enemies fighting against them. Uh, as they were in Egypt in captivity for several hundred years, And then as they went into the land of Canaan and there were people who were raising up against them in the time of judgments, different clans and people groups coming to fight them. And God says, I'm going to deliver you. From all of those who would desire to destroy you, all of those who would desire to get rid of you, I will be delivered to you. And then this idea of quieting the heart, this is a really beautiful statement. God says, my love will quiet. My love will quiet your heart. I remember as a child, I went through several different accidents in my life. And all of the major ones, my dad was there. I jumped off about a 
foot and a half doorway in an old shed at my grandparents and landed squarely on a ten-penny nail. It went through my tennis shoe and my foot. And Dad was able to calm me down. Several years later, he and my uncle were shooting at cans and bottles. and It's called plinking in Texas. I'm not sure what you call it here in Mississippi. But they were shooting. And my 11-year-old brain thought it would be really cool to go see how many things they hit. And I ran out and tripped. Folks, I'm not the most graceful person. I even did a face plant the other night at Walmart. It, I, I, if I can find a way to fall, I do. And I fell with my arms outstretched and land on a broken jar and cut my wrist open. And Dad was there. I fell and got a rock in my knee on a, from a bicycle wreck. And Dad was there. And I looked back. Now, Mom was taking care of all the little things. But it was amazing at the moment in time that I was most frightened, that I was most hurting, my father, who was in the Air Force, who could be gone on TDY for weeks at a time, God arranged it that Daddy was there. And there was something about his arms carrying me to the car to go to the hospital and get a rock out of my knee that calmed me. My dad loved me. And my mom loved me through fevers, through childhood illnesses, and to the very end, I knew my mother's love. And God says, I love you. And I will quiet your heart. And in doing so, he says, you don't, you shouldn't let your hands grow weak. You shouldn't surrender to all that's happening because I am with you. I will deal with the problems. I will share with you my love. And I will quiet your heart. Eugene Peterson. I wrote a book, uh, Practice Resurrection. Interesting title. And he talked about a couple, Fred and Cheryl. Both of our Cheryl so today, so. Fred and Cheryl adopted a child in Haiti over 25 years ago now. Little Addie was five years old, and her parents had been killed in a traffic accident. And when they went to pick her up, as she walked onto the tarmac, she reached up and surprisingly firmly grasped the hands of her new mom and dad. And Fred and Cheryl later said that this was like a birth moment. How the innocent, fearless trust expressed in that physical act of grasping their hands seemed almost as miraculous as when their two sons, 15 and 13, were born and came through the birth canal. They made their way back home to Arizona and they sat down to a dinner meal. And the table was covered with food. There were pork chops, there were mashed potatoes, just all sorts of food. And Addie watched, somewhat horror-stricken, at her 15-year-old and 13-year-old brothers, Thatcher and Graham, because after they finished the first pork chop, they didn't stop. They kept eating everything until finally. Now, she got her meal, but they were grabbing everything until finally the table was empty. And Fred and Cheryl looked at Addie and noticed there was something wrong. She'd grown very quiet. She seemed a little bit apprehensive, maybe a little bit uncertain. And Cheryl made a great guess that moms have a way of doing that, don't they? She realized it was because of the food. Addie had grown up in a country where she had always been hungry. And as she watched the food, all of the food disappear from the table, she was thinking back to her old life where that probably meant it would be several days before they had any more food. So Cheryl took her by the hand and led her first to the bread drawer, opened up the drawer and let her see three extra loaves of bread. And then she took her to the refrigerator, opened the door, and there were bottles of milk and orange juice, fresh vegetables, jars of jelly and jam, 
There was a tub of peanut butter, a carton of eggs, and a package of bacon. She then took her to the pantry with his bins of potatoes, onions, squash, and uh, the, the just wonderful shells of canned goods, tomatoes, peaches, pickles. She then took Addie to the freezer and opened it up, and Addie got to see three or four chickens, a few packages of fish, and two cartons of ice cream. All the time, Cheryl was reassuring Addie, you'll never be hungry again. But the wonderful thing about this, she didn't just tell her that. She showed her the resources. She put food into the little girl's hand and just let her know, you will never grow hungry again. And Addie realized food was there. Whether she could see it on a table or not, the provision was there. Her brothers were no longer rivals at the dinner table because there was enough food. She would never go hungry again, and all of her fears were allayed because her loving mother showed her, you're home, and we're going to take care of you. God was willing to tell the people of Judah, You don't have to be afraid. For your king is with you and will take care of you. What that means for us today is that fear does not have to reign in our hearts. Fear does not have to control our lives. And unfortunately, the world is a scary place. I'm one of the first to acknowledge that. There's a lot of stuff out there that is frightening and and terrifying and our minds can do so much i i'm if i were a betting man i would say at least most of our congregation at some point or another has played the what if game you know that game don't you well what if this happens and what if this happens what if my test comes back positive what if i lose my job and the what ifs go on and on and can bring us to absolute uncertainty and anxiety but when we remember the truth that has touched us that God is with us, all of a sudden, our fears can start being dealt with by the hand of our God. I've shared this next passage I want to read with you so many times, I have no idea how many in the 12 years I've been with you. It's one of my favorite passages in the book of Romans. It's a beautiful statement. Paul is writing to the Romans, and in the 8th chapter, at the end of the chapter, He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ. Folks, that's joy. God is with us. And He is going to take care of us. Even if the worst things happen, He will be with us, giving us victory. We will be, we are conquerors in Jesus Christ. And so, my friends, we can rejoice as we yield our uncertainties to the God who is with us, who says, I will be with you and my love will surround you. When the world's fears hit you hard and you are uncertain about what's coming, fall on your face before your God and ask Him to give you strength and ask Him to give you peace. When uncertainty tries to dissuade you from doing the things you know God wants you to do, dissuade you 
seek from the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we feel like giving in, and at some point, all of us feel like giving in, let us turn to the strengthening of the Holy Spirit. In doing so, we can rejoice. Our God will quiet our fears. But there's more. And this is an amazing idea. Our God will join our celebration. Our God is going to join the celebration of his people. When you look at what Zephaniah said, Zephaniah proclaimed that God was going to shout for joy on behalf of his people. Now keep in mind, once again, the bulk of this prophet's message is doom and gloom. Judgment is coming. The Lord was displeased with the northern kingdom of Israel who would fall to Assyria. Assyria. A couple hundred years later, Babylon would begin to rattle its swords and Judah would eventually fall. God was going to judge not only Judah and Israel, but Zephaniah says he's going to judge the whole world. The Lord was displeased with his people and with the nations of the world. And the prophecies of Zephaniah made it clear No one escapes the judgment. God will hold everyone into account. Throughout the book, there is very little hope until this passage. And then God says, I'm going to restore you. I'm going to restore you. And it begins with his people. It would culminate in all of the world having to acknowledge that God is God. And the most amazing thing about this God says, I will rejoice over you to a people. He's saying, I'm going to punish you right now. God says, I rejoice in you. I will shout for joy. This is said before the actual judgment comes. But God declares this to be true. This is a prophetic utterance. You may not see it now, and you may not see it later, but in my timing, I'm going to have a party over you. I'm rejoicing over you. You see, even before Babylon had to come, this is the amazing thing about God, he knew the outcome. He knew that his love would restore the remnant He knew that he was going to forgive. He was going to protect. And God said, I'm going to move you back to me. And when I do, it's going to be shouting time. This is absolutely amazing to me. Our God takes great joy in moving us closer to his side. Folks, Every time I read this passage, I get tiny little goosebumps when I think about what it's saying. Now, I want to share with you just very quickly, there is a concept in theology that goes back centuries that talks about God. It's often unseen as being influenced by Greek philosophy, and I believe it definitely was. And it's called, you don't need to know the name, but it's it's they talk about the impassibility of God. It's growing from the word that gives us passions. And it is saying, essentially, God does not experience emotion. Those are all just ways of the biblical writers talking about God with human language to try and help them understand what was going on. So any passage of scripture that speaks of God having a a motion is attributing a human characteristic to God. The basic idea is, If God experienced emotions, he would change, and since God doesn't change, he can't. I'm a little bit simplistic at times. And I look at the Bible and I see many, many different places where God has had to experience emotion. Now, it is not in such a way that will change who he is at the depths of his being nor will it forestall his ultimate purpose. But this is just one example of many. And when I hear God say, I'm going to shout for joy, I'm going to sing out loud in exaltation, 
because of my people, that thrills me. That absolutely thrills me. The opening choir special was great. You guys did, did a great job. And I got pumped up right then. But then I think, God sings over us. God sings for us. Enjoy. That is incredible. That is amazing. John Corson had a wonderful take on the passage. He says, we, we see the Redeemer of Israel in our midst, and he's rejoicing. He says, we have a tendency to look at God and think he worries about us. We picture God, and he's got a furrowed brow, and he's wringing his hands. And Corson wrote, he, God, we think about him saying, is John going to make it? make it? I'm not sure. But if he gets out of line, I'll beat him. And that's the way God looks at us. And Corson argues that is could not be further from the truth. The Lord in our midst is rejoicing and singing and resting. How could God rejoice in us even when we mess up all of the time? Corson argues it's because he sees us in our glorified state. He sees the finished product. And he said, suppose I get a, a, a shoebox and I put a bunch of peanut butter on one end and a bunch of ants on the other end and I put a lot of blockades. He said, if I could look at their faces, they would be frustrated. They wouldn't know what they're doing. They would be running. Some would be falling and, and all sorts of stuff. And they would be totally frustrated because they know the peanut butter's there. They can, they can sense something is there. But then he says, one by one, a few ants get there. And when they cross that last hurdle and they see the peanut butter, they burst. Their faces are full and so full and grinning and smiling. And he knows that eventually all of the ants will get to the food. Folks, God sees us marching through time. Yes, he sees our failings and falters. And because he loves us, he convicts us and calls the Spirit to bring us back to him. But in the end, our Father, who is not surprised by anything that happens, knows we are his own, and one day our struggle will be over. God sees us. And that's why he can rejoice. Because he knows the end result. This is amazing to me that God looks, God sings for joy, knowing that even when we stumble and fall, he will bring us back. We will come back to him. And so, folks, we can rejoice today in knowing that God delights in renewing us. I am absolutely blown away. God takes pleasure in Danny. That floors me. The idea that he shouts for joy should bring us to a place of unbridled joy. Just think about it, folks. God singing joyful, joyful. I adore you. He loves us and sings on our behalf. And so we can rejoice. We're living in a mixed-up world. We're living in a confused and chaotic world. We're living in a world that changed, and yet God is rejoicing because he knows. He knows what he's going to do for his children. And that brings us to our next step. We see in this passage of Scripture, our God will welcome us home. Welcome us home. Zephaniah, this prophet of doom and gloom, held out the great promise that God would bring his people home from exile. Judgment was going to become, that was certain. They had crossed a line and they were not repenting. But God was not going to leave his people behind as strangers in a strange land. A remnant would return to God, would repent, would seek his face. In Babylon, there's a pretty strong evidence that the synagogue started its formation in Babylon and during the Persian period when they did not have a temple they could go to. They were meeting together for prayer. The fact that Ezekiel talks about a meeting together points to that direction. 
they would find salvation in the God Almighty, the warrior who would stand up for them. And when they had returned, they would give a testimony of God's might and compassion for the world to see. There's a beautiful statement here. And the people in Zephaniah's day would not understand it. It would not become alive to them until they are in the Babylonian captivity. When he says, for all of you who are mourning for the festival, all of you are mourning for, most likely talking about Passover. And they can't observe it because the temple's gone. And God says, I'm going to bring you home. And he rejoices in them. I am going to bring you home. And folks, out ahead of us is the promise of the new Jerusalem. Home is beckoning us. It's calling to us. We see it in moments of quiet when we lift our hearts up to the Lord and just sit waiting to hear from Him. We see it as we read the Word of God. For all those who love the Lord, the gates will never be closed in the new city. In Revelation, again, the 22nd, 21st chapter, there is a description of this, this city. And he says there's not going to be a temple there, for God is in the midst. The city won't need a sun because God's glory will light it and the Lamb will be the Lamb. He says, by its light the nations will walk, the kings of the earth will bring glory to it. And this is a part that is absolutely amazing. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Uh, my dad, and, and I, I love my dad very much, but he used to play a joke on me. And, and I will tell you right off the bat, I knew it was a joke. I never took him seriously. But he'd look at me, and from period, every once in a while he says, one of these days I'm going to throw a quarter out the back door, and when you leave, we're going to lock it, and we're going to get away. I never thought my dad would shut the door on me. And I know that God will not. We're his children. And we will freely enter in to our new home, to worship the Lamb, to bask in the glory of God. And so, what that means, we can rejoice in the hope that our journey will one day be complete. Until that time, we're going to have some homesickness. Uh, you may not be able to put a finger on why things don't quite seem right, but as children of the living God, we know instinctively we were meant for more than this world. We are told in the book of Hebrews, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And it's referencing, I believe, a statement made in the 11th chapter. This is in Hebrews 13. When Abraham is described as looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. That's our city. And as long as I'm here, there's going to be a restlessness in my heart. But one day the homesickness will be gone. And we will live in that city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. We will be with all of the people of God within our, uh, the entire universe, gathered together. And folks, a really great thing about that, the really great difference between that and sometimes home holiday gatherings, we won't be tired of each other. We won't be ready for them to go back home and give us some peace. We'll be forever at home. But there's one more step that God takes. Now this big, we'll be home, we'll be before God, we will be in His presence, that is absolutely amazing. But he ends the text by pointing to another truth. God, our God will restore our fortunes. When I restore your fortunes right before your eyes, 
And what Zephaniah is saying, and, and keep in mind, this is prophetic. The people of Judah have not experienced the captivity yet. They may be afraid of Assyria, but they haven't experienced it. And it will be a while before they do. Zephaniah pointed, prophecy pointed to a time when God's people would see what they lost returned. This book would come alive, the memory of this book, uh, embedded in the scribes who would copy these things, uh, became real for the people of Judah in captivity. And they knew, God says, I'm going to restore your fortunes. I'm going to give you back what you have lost because the judgment will be over. They would live a life free from fear and enemy. They would walk in hope, peace, and joy. Now it's clear the ultimate fulfillment of this passage has not happened yet. And that's why I have tried to reemphasize Advent is not just saying, all right, Jesus is about to be born, let's get excited. It talks about his first Advent, but the passages also talk about his return. And I believe that Zephaniah is expressing what Paul wished to express in the book of Romans. At the beginning of his statement, Paul says in in chapter 9, he talks about his brothers and he says, I would give, he's essentially saying, I would give up my salvation if I could to see my brothers come to faith in Christ. That's dedication. But in the, the ninth chapter, verse 26, well, first, in verse 25 he says, basically the people of Israel are, have become hardened until the fullness of the Gentiles come. Uh, they're refusing to follow Christ, open the door for us to come and know Christ. But then Paul says something amazing, verse 26, and in this way all Israel will be saved. It is written, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regard the gospels, they're enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. God had not abandoned his people. Now, folks, I'm not one of those preachers who will tell you I can explain exactly when this is going to happen or how it's going to happen. But Paul held out a hope that those of Israel who truly wanted to follow God would find the Christ who would open them up and they would be saved. God had not abandoned his people. And he's telling them that now before the judgment comes because he wants them to hold on to a joy and a hope. Now, I know when I say we're going to be home in heaven, there's not much more I can say that is greater than that. But there's one aspect of this. We look at what is in store for all of the people of God. Now let's take a little, a more minute look. Because I believe this, this promise is for us. One day, all of the pain caused by sin will be removed from our existence. Yes, we're going to be in heaven. And we're going to be there purely by the grace of the living God. None of us in this room deserve it. None of us in this room will ever earn it. We have all failed. We have all fallen. And to say that I'm going to be with God and the issue of my sin will be removed is in the hands of God. We are members of a new covenant. And the body is crucial, but the body also, the the Word of God also pays attention to us as individuals. We are the adopted children of God. Paul says in the book of Romans, we've been grafted into the tree of Israel. And we are sons and daughters of Abraham. But let's face it. Even though God looks at us and sees the end result, our lives are marred, aren't they? We have failed, we have sinned. And while sins are forgiven, we very often have to deal with the consequences. Those sins of word, thought, and deed, the consequences fall on us, just like a scar from a wound that is healed. But Zephaniah promises 
And God moves to bring this world as we know it to a close. As Messiah comes in triumph, as King of kings and Lord of lords, the power, the penalty, and the presence of sin will be forever removed. Just let that wash over you. If I were to ask for a show of hands, I'm pretty sure I'm not the only one. But I will tell you, there are times... There are times I look back to things that happened 30 and 40 years ago. Things of which I am so ashamed. And I will cry out to my God to forgive me. And the enemy whispers in my ear, no true child of God would do that. And I cry out and my God doesn't have a clue what I'm talking about because he tells us in his word he forgets our sin. He removes our sin. He blots it away from us. But the guilt can still raise its head in my life. I'm telling you there's coming a day when that will never happen again. None of us are going to be in heaven with the fraud syndrome. None of us are going to be standing there wondering what when they find out I don't really belong because we belong purely from what Christ has done. And we can rejoice because we will finally be made whole. Folks, we're not just going to get to live in a perfect new world. We ourselves will be brought to perfection. There's an old phrase that is used. That I don't hear it much anymore, but it's called glorification. The Word of God tells us there's going to come in time when our salvation is made complete, we're going to be like Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to be as equal. Jesus will always be my Lord. God will always be my God. We're told we will be like him, the Lord who saved us. Uh, a couple years ago, I preached through 1 John for you. One of my favorite passages, 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not been yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Our battles will be over. And we will rejoice forevermore. When the scripture says there are no tears in heaven, this is one of the things it's talking about. We'll be whole. And we'll be whole. I won't ever have to worry. As graceful as I am, I'm never going to skin my knee on the street of gold. I'm going to be able to see with crystal clarity all that has happened in my life that has brought me shame and guilt will be gone forever. It is already gone in God's eyes, but it will be gone in mine. Robert Rainey was principal of a new college in Edinburgh, Scotland, from 1874 to 1906. He was a Scottish Presbyterian minister, and he was well-known and a great man of God. Now, Scottish Presbyterian people don't have a really great reputation of being jovial. They don't have a really great reputation of being happy. But a girl, little girl who knew this great man of God once remarked that she believed Principal Rainey went to heaven every night because he was so happy every day. And breaking the traditional stereotype of Scottish Presbyterians, he said one of the greatest things about joy I've ever read. Joy, he said, is the flag which is flown from the castle of the heart when the king is in residence. Joy is a sign that we truly belong to the king. So, let's raise the flag of joy in our lives today. God is with us. And he's with us to quiet our fears. He's with us to join in the celebration, to sing with us. He's here to bring us home and to restore our fortune. To give us back everything that sin had taken out of our character 
in our lives. So, may we begin to let the joy of the Lord be our strength. May we begin walking in joy in such a way that the world out there who is terrified and confused might ask, what do they have that I don't? Opening a door to talk to them about our Lord. Now, if you've lost your joy, if you're here and the reality of the world and the reality of your own failures weighs heavy on your heart, and it's been a long time since you felt joy before the Lord, I encourage you to take a very beautiful psalm, Psalm 51. It is a psalm that I have prayed many times in my life when convicted and overcome by my own sin. And in that psalm, David, who said, you don't want my sacrifices, you want a broken and contrite heart, you want me to come throwing myself on your mercies. And he prayed a prayer. I'm going to ask you today, if your joy is gone, pray this. In Psalm 51, verses 12 and 13. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors their way and sinners will return to you. Do you catch that connection? When joy returns in my life, my life will have an impact on those who don't know you. So today, if you're struggling to make any sense of this concept of Advent joy, today will you open yourself up to God? And will you let him move in your life? I'm going to invite you to bow your heads at this time, and we're going to have a time of prayer together. And again, I will offer open up the altar if you would like to come and pray there. But if your joy has escaped you, understand this. You will never create it. Only God can. So let's go to him and you ask him today, God, it's been a long time since I felt your joy. It's been a long time since I've known the hope and peace your joy can bring. Today, Father, will you restore my joy, the joy of your salvation in my life so that I can live with my flag unfurled for the world to see the flag of joy.